pray at all times without losing heart. This command of Christ is in part fulfilled through the celebration of the liturgy of the hours at every hour of the day and night by priests, religious, and laity throughout the world. Today I'll be speaking with our Assistant Director of Music at St. Paul's about the Church's ancient tradition of chanting the Psalms and how to encourage more faithful to join in this universal act of praise. Welcome to the Harvard Catholic, conversations with interesting people and dedicated disciples of Christ from the greater Harvard community. Hosted by me, undergraduate chaplain and almost famous jazz drummer, Father Patrick Fiorillo. Be sure to follow us or subscribe to stay on top of all the latest episodes. Here we go. And we're back for Sacred Music Part 2. Last year, I interviewed James Kennerly, our Director of Music for St. Paul's Parish and Choir School. Definitely recommend checking that out if you missed it. Today, I have our Assistant Director of Music, Max Attic, to continue our conversation. Welcome, Max. It's great to be here, Father. Aha, and I hear the British accent, so that makes two of you from England on staff here. <laughs> so tell us about your background. What inspired you to pursue organ and choral conducting, and how did you end up here in the U.S.? Well, um, so I started uh, my musical journey as a chorister at the Brompton Oratory in London, um, that great bastion of traditional Catholic liturgy and music. Um, after that, I went up to Oxford to be organ scholar of Oriel College, which is, of course, where Cardinal Newman, or should I say St. John Henry Cardinal Newman, mm -hmm. whatever we might call him now. The patron saint of the Harvard Catholic Centre. Indeed, indeed. He was a fellow there. Um, so I was organ scholar there for three years. And from there, I continued to study the organ, took a degree in musicology. And then five years later, I went up to Litchfield Cathedral to be organ scholar there. Uh, before heading over to Liverpool to be organ scholar of the Anglican Cathedral there for a short while, uh, before moving here um, across the pond. Um, I initially, want, uh, well, the reason I came over the pond was to uh, follow my um, follow Sarah, who is now my wife, who's doing uh -huh. a congratulations. A, thank you, thank you. Uh, who was doing a PhD at Princeton in classics um, mm -hmm. at the time, and he was still doing a PhD in classics as well. So yeah, so that's basically how I got into church music and. Yeah, I've been doing it since I was about 10. So, <laughs> Well, it's great to have you here. So the Gregorian chant tradition has been preserved and handed down through monastic life, primarily through the centuries. Now, since being a monk, as you just mentioned, is not your vocation <laughs> officially, what draws you to want to carry on this living tradition outside of the monastery and in parish churches? It's a very... Um, it's a very tall order for the church to expect the laity to be able to really sort of preserve and actively partake in Gregorian chant, particularly when, particularly here in America, we aren't fed a diet of Gregorian chant in your average parish. It's, a, it's an extremely tall order. Um, yet there are sort of plenty of resources to be able to do that. I think through the history of the church, um, Yes, the monastics and indeed the friars have been able to sing plain song. Um, the extent to which the laity uh, really took part in all of that is really is up for debate, I would say. Right. 
So I wouldn't say So what strictly. inspires you to want to do that, though, outside of the monastery? Well, um, as someone who is a church organist and a uh, church musician and someone who whose um, duty it is to try and uplift worship and uplift the the spiritual and liturgical experience of the faithful, I think it's uh, part of my vocation as a church musician to take on that part of religious life, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you just alluded to, there is indeed this strong tension between the ideal, which we might call arguably a sort of monastic liturgy, where you have, you're making full use of the whole Gregorian repertoire, and between that and what's actually feasible, because most of that is just not possible to be done in a parish church. Now, this is obviously a huge conversation that we're Mm -hmm. not going to resolve right now in this hour. But even just on a theoretical level, how does one begin to try to resolve this tension between what the church holds as this ideal that should be done and promoted well everywhere and what is feasible and practical? Well, at a at a really high structural level, I feel that uh, probably uh, the church should afford some like really genuine liturgical and musical training to its musicians, because I think far too many far too many of us probably don't even have the slightest clue where to start with, um, you know, setting up the music for the hours. But I would say a good starting point for a you know, music director or a layperson who is interested to begin chanting the hours is to just visit a monastery probably for a couple of days. Indeed, or not even visit a monastery. Now in a COVID tide, it is possible to just go onto YouTube and just, you know, tap into that mm-hmm. uh, rich monastic life and just see what they're doing. You know, pray along with the monks. We are able now to actually just go into a monastic choir whenever we like. You could arguably be a sort of external member of a monastery through YouTube. There you, you don't, go. You don't even have to. You don't even have to uh, really do anything else. Uh, yeah, it's it's easier than ever to be an oblate Benedictine. <laughs> now, does this sort of monastic liturgy provide us with an ideal? I mean, I'm, that's a debatable topic that I threw out there, but is, or is there something else we can look to for uh, a source of, you know, vibrant use of Gregorian chant and sacred music? I think for a start, um, I think it's, uh, it's probably a bad supposition to say that the divine office is a monastic liturgy. I mean, it's not. Uh, yes, monks use it. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a monastic thing. Monks use tractors to plough fields in Arkansas. Subiaco doesn't mean tractors are monastic. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, on a, continue, continue. Yeah, no, this, yeah, this is getting a bit weird. Uh, but um, it's very, very possible to go out of the actual strict monastery and do this. Probably one of the first times in the church's history where this sort of quote-unquote monastic liturgy was taken outside of the monastery was in the 12th and 13th centuries uh, when um, the mendicant orders first started to appear. 
Um, That's the Dominicans and Franciscans. Yeah, the uh, the five great. Yes, it was the Augustinians, Dominicans, Franciscans, the Servites, and the Carmelites. Mm-hmm. They were all founded within maybe seventy years of each other, all in northern Italy, um, and they were literally monasteries built inside towns and cities in northern Italy and Spain, as opposed to monasteries which were in the middle of nowhere. Right. Um, Where the cities would be formed around them. Yes, but these 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 places were founded right in the in the midst of cities, and their their duty was to try and spread uh, the energy, if you like, the spiritual energy of a monastery into a city. Some, there's some really curious ways that they managed to do all of this, uh, particularly in Italy, in Tuscany and Umbria. Uh, these um, confraternities were founded, all centred around these mendicant houses. A uh, great example of this are the cities of Florence and Cortona, uh, where these confraternities were founded around these mendicant houses uh, with the sole purpose of uh, singing a genre of music called lauda. Uh-huh. Now, lauda is a fascinating, fascinating genre. Uh, it is vernacular sacred, non-liturgical, monophonic song. So it's sacred. It's about holy things as opposed to the profane. Yep. It is vernacular. It's not in Latin. It's in the vulgar tongue, i.e. the tongue uh, native, so like some weird Etruscany, Tuscany dialect. It's sacred, it's, it's sacred, but it's non-liturgical, so it's not for any liturgy. And it's monophonic, so it doesn't have any chords or, or like instruments or anything. So it sounds like plain song, in Italian, however, it's not for any liturgy. They were sung at these devotional services in at, at sort of roughly the time of Compline. And all of these lay people and the friars from one of these monasteries would gather inside the chapel of one of these uh, mendicant monasteries, or mendicant friaries, rather. And they would gather to sing louder and listen to a few readings. So you essentially had this slightly weird adapted compline being sung by a load of lay people, merchants, market vendors, whatever you do. Mm. But they would gather together into these confraternities called louder confraternities or laudesi in Italian. Now, the really interesting thing in all of this is that the tunes that they used were based on plain song. So here they are in the 12th and 13th centuries doing the work that, you know, Adam Bartlett and his Lumen Christi people are doing right here, right now. They are taking uh, these plain song melodies, plain song texts, translating them into Italian and um, essentially translating the melodies into, into a melody that could be used to uh, be sung in Italian as opposed to Latin. And it follows the pattern of the liturgical year and such like. It really is quite a fascinating thing. I could talk for hours and hours and hours about it. <laughs> so the, there is a sort of historical precedent for this. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, I have to say, the first, the first, the earliest recorded louder is um, um, St. Francis of Assisi's Canticle of the Sun. Mm-hmm. So if you go to the, uh, the monastic library in Assisi and see the original manuscript of the Canticle of the Sun... Um, there are empty staves for music. The music was never put in, mm-hmm. but the Canticle of the Sun was clearly supposed to be sung. And by its poetic structure, it is clearly a sung louder, which is then what the music was. It's one of the great musicological mysteries. Wow. 
Anyway. Fascinating. There is precedent. They were trying to do this 700 years ago, and they still haven't solved the problem. <laughs> this is where we are. <laughs> All right. Well, that brings us to Vatican II, where uh, the Constitution on Sacred Liturgy called on churches to host Vespers services every Sunday, and more broadly speaking, encouraged the laity to participate in the divine office with priests and religious. So, just to clarify for our audience, there's two broad categories of liturgical worship, and thus also uh, sacred music. We have the Mass, and then there's also the divine office, which is a daily cycle of the chanting of the psalms and short scriptural readings. And every priest and religious throughout the world makes a solemn promise to pray this every day, multiple times a day. And the idea is that on a weekly or semi-weekly basis, the whole Psalter, all 150 psalms, are chanted, and it becomes a rhythm of life. And so it was not very popular with the laity prior to Vatican II, but Vatican II is now encouraging everybody to participate in this, to, to reap the fruits of this, because it's a beautiful complement to the Mass. So before we even get to the musical aspect, which is why I brought you here to talk about, yes. why, why should the Liturgy of the Hours or the Divine Office be seen as an essential part of Christian worship? like the Mass? I suppose it's important to, in a sense, consecrate your your entire day uh, to the service of God. Yes, Mass is you know, a very important part of that. But if you put in Lords, you know, the Office of Readings, and Vespers, you are really bookending your day. So those are the names for our audience of the different... Uh, hours of the Liturgy of the Hours that are prayed. So lauds would be the morning prayer service of psalms and readings, and then vespers would be the evening service. Office of readings, or traditionally called matins, would usually come earlier in the morning or at night before morning prayer. Um, those, those, three, those three offices, I believe, are what is called the greater hours. Yep. Um, and then there's all the former monastic hours, which are called the lesser hours. So there's like midday prayer, mid-afternoon. They used to have really nice names like terse, sext, known. Yep, 9 a.m., noon, 3 yeah. p.m. All of that. And of course, there's Compline at the end. Compline is, I would say, a very, very beautiful starter office, if you like. If you want to try and incorporate... This is night prayer at yeah. the end of the day, it's very short. You can do it in 15 minutes. And then the last thing you say before you fall asleep is the canticle of Simeon. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. Few nicer ways to fall asleep than contemplating your own mortality and mm -hmm. dedicating your soul into the hands of God. So just as the mass and the various feast days and seasons mark the changing of seasons and weeks throughout the year, the liturgy of the hours really breaks down the day and mm -hmm. and really gives us a spirituality for each part of the day and specific ways of praising God throughout the hours. Yeah. The more, I think the morning canticle being the canticle of Zechariah, um, known as the Benedictus, you have um, it's the part... Blessed be the Lord, the, the God, God of, of Israel. Israel. 
um, it's what Zachariah says uh, when his lips are opened, um, having been struck dumb, mm-hmm. and he gives praise and thanks to God uh, for the birth of his son, John the Baptist. What a beautiful way to start a day, to praise God for his loving mercy towards his people. Mm-hmm. Um, Vespers. And that have- canticle is said every day. Now there's a rotation of psalms. The psalms and readings change, but that gospel canticle that Max just mentioned, that's said at every single Lord's service. And then that Vespers, there's a gospel canticle, and that stays the same for canticle every of Mary. Vespers service. Correct. It's, it's, it's an amazing way to reflect on the events of the entire liturgical year. You sit there on Christmas morning, my soul doth magnify the Lord, my spirit is rejoiced in God my Saviour, you, and you're meditating during Vespers on the words of Mary at the Annunciation. You're hearing that on Good Friday, you're hearing that on Pentecost, mm-hmm. and suddenly it puts a different angle entirely on everything that's happening around you at Mass, etc., etc. Then with the Psalms, it's important to hear as much of the Psalter as possible, at the end of the day... Yeah, what, what's the significance of the Psalms? What, why are these so important in Christian worship, as they, opposed to the other books of the Bible? They are the, they are the, 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 they are the Psalms. They are the prayers that Jesus himself would have said as an you know, extremely observant um, you know, Jewish man. He would have been saying them all of the time. Um, indeed, what's the, what's the final thing that uh, Jesus did at the Last Supper with his apostles? Yeah, they sang a psalm and they went out onto the Mount of Olives. Psalms are central to Jesus' life. And if we can somehow connect... And the um, psalms are fundamentally prayers. Oh, yeah, they're, they're prayers. They express every you know, single emotion it is possible for a human being to experience you've got the psalms of great joy you've got the psalms of desperation um you've got if you get into the 40s and the 50s you've got the psalms of great anger and annoyance mm. at god yep. um, psalm 138 you know some you're, are you're even, asking God to smash children against stones and stuff like that. That's right. Some are even would be would be scandalous to pious ears. They're so filled with raw human emotion. Yeah, it's. Uh, but it is. It's interesting in the in the office. All of these um, all of these psalms and canticles as well. They are all framed by antiphons, which uh, are these little um, one sentence. Um, phrases at the beginning is beginning and end and they essentially contextualize it so for example if you have a psalm or indeed a canticle uh say a vespers you have the magnificat the canticle uh on good friday will be framed by a relevant um magnificat antiphon which gives you a, a, a gentle nudge on what to think about and what to meditate on as you are praying that canticle. What is that Good yeah. Friday antiphon? Oh, goodness me, is it Christ became obedient unto death, even death on a cross? Right. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name above all other names. My soul magnifies the greatness of the Lord, blah, blah, right. blah, 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 blah. Um, Not a throwaway phrase. Yeah. It's, um, it's, 
kind of it's kind of important. Mm-hmm. Um, then you get uh, four verses into the Magnificat, and holy is his name, and you've just been um, thinking all about you know Christ becoming obedient unto death, name above all other names. Um, they really are incredible. One of the other fascinating little aspects of the divine office is all these psalms and canticles are concluded with the uh, the lesser doxology, the glory to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So whatever has been expressed within it, um, you are encircling that text and your thoughts and your reflections on it uh, within the glory of the Holy Trinity, essentially. Right. Yep. After a while of praying the divine office, you begin to get slowly used to the various psalms and canticles and you almost begin to say them, I'm not going to say on autopilot, but you end up being able to pick up different meanings. You don't ever truly get bored of them or anything like that. You begin to focus on different things and that's one of the greatest things about it it's beautiful and and just like all of scripture i mean these psalms there's there's 150 of them but when we pray them regularly throughout our days and lives the same psalm can take on different meaning for us at different times in our lives yeah you really need to think in some of these uh psalms of some of the most surreal images that come up and you really have to pray about them and think about them. Leviathans playing around in water, random Old Testament kings being slain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why is that relevant? You have to pray it to find out. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so the general instructions of the Liturgy of the Hours, printed at the beginning of the breviary, says the following. It is not only when those things are read, those things being the Psalms and sacred scripture, but also when the church prays or sings that faith is deepened for those who take part and their minds are lifted up to God so that they may offer him spiritual worship and receive grace from him in greater abundance. So many lay persons, I'm sure we could convince, well, I should say all people, including priests and religious, it's easy to convince of the necessity and beauty of praying the Psalms and the Liturgy of the Hours. But singing it might seem like an entirely other task and maybe even daunting task. So first, why sing it in the first place? Why is there this necessity of not only praying the Psalms, but singing them? Well, heading back, you know, going back to the uh, time of the temple and Jewish worship, Psalms and liturgy was always sung. It is a very, very, it is, it is one of the ways that we pray for, you know, if you really want to sort of very boring musicological argument, you could say, well, I mean, the only way you could hear a reading being, being, you know, being read in a big Gothic cathedral in the ninth century is if someone was going, hello, hello, my name is Max, I am saying a reading. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you could argue that. I think there's probably a bit more to it than that. Mm-hmm. Um, psalms are sung. They have to be sung. 
Um, they are songs. What's different about singing than just speaking a psalm? If you sing, you have to you have to go over the words a little bit more slowly. If you are reading it, you could easily get into saying, you know, queer respects the humility You can sit there and mumble it through. Mm-hmm. And gloss over. If you're actually singing it, Quia respects it, humilitate manchile sue. You've got to slow down a bit. You've got to reflect on the words a bit longer. Particularly if you're doing it with several other people, you have to slow down a bit. Mm-hmm. I believe it does enable us to be able to, you know, meditate on it a bit more. St. Paul tells us. You have to pray in psalms, spiritual canticles, and sacred songs. It's good for the soul. I think yep. St. Augustine says, whoever sings once prays... No. Yeah, whoever sings prays twice, that's it, isn't it? Yep. Or legend has it. I was going to say, whoever sings sings twice prays once, but that's definitely not right. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's definitely some more intentionality that has to go into singing, whereby we're engaging more of our body and mind right into this and you mentioned singing with other people just that requires also actively listening while you're singing because you have to line up with the other person right yeah it's a i mean singing as a ritual act you know in you know both jewish religion and indeed in uh, my wife, the archaeologist and classicist, will kill me for saying this. Uh, I suppose in Greek religion and Roman religion, it's a it's a great ritual act. It is something that that does happen. You know, we have inherited this idea of singing in worship, right? Which goes far beyond Christianity. Yeah, it goes far beyond, far, far, far beyond Christianity. If you look across at all these world religions, everyone is singing. Um, you know. If we think that, you know, monks do a lot of singing, just poke your head around the door of a Coptic church or an Eastern or a, or a you know, Eastern Orthodox Byzantine Rite church, it sounds like an absolute, you know, madhouse. All of this, you know, you know, wailing and beautiful chanting, it's absolutely astonishing. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we seem like a bunch of Puritans compared to that. Um, everything there is sung. And when I say everything, you know, I'm looking, looking at this piece of paper. Um, it has the Magnificat on it. And I, I know you all can't see it. But it says here, tone 8 GGC, medians of the first accent. Those are singing instructions. Yes. What we would do here in the Western Church is we would read, okay, in our, in our head, go, okay, so it's tone 8, it's medians of the first accent. And then we would just go, Magnificat. However, if you're in the Eastern Church, someone would go, tone 8 GGG, star C, medians of the first accent. <laughs> Magnificat. Literally, I am not nice. even joking. Yeah, yeah, I know. That I've is what it. would happen. They, they sing the rubrics. Yep. And... That's really beautiful in yes. a way. The fact you're actually engaging that much with what's in the book and that much with what is in, you know, in the office and in the prayer, that, that does say something. There is mm-hmm. something intense about the act of singing. You truly are at that point dedicating everything to God and to your worship. Mm-hmm. You are no longer this thing with one of the most beautiful things with Eastern spirituality. When you go into a Eastern church, you are supposed you are supposed to be going into a little version of heaven. Um, 
and everything you do in there is in accordance with what you do in heaven. And in the scriptures, it says that the angels and saints are singing. singing. <laughs> yes. Um, Isaiah 6, they're all singing, singing, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. Right. Of course they're singing. I forgot about it. Yeah, angels sing, don't they? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> they sing in Latin, right? Yeah. Just kidding. No. <laughs> <laughs> they do in art, yes. Okay, so say someone's listening to this and feels inspired to want to start praying and chanting the office, but they've never even heard it before and don't even know where to begin. Where can they start with just hearing the office and the Psalms sung? A great starting point uh, for uh, listening or trying to get into the divine office and listening to how it's done would be to go onto YouTube and find a, a local monastery well, not so local monastery. You can go anywhere at this moment in time, thanks to the internet. And just tune into Vespers or the Office of Readings and just listen to the monks or indeed nuns singing to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, Psalms and these canticles, they are all sung antiphonally. Um, monks in their choir area tend to sit opposite each other. So one side will sing one half of a verse and it's different from a regular parish church because their seats are literally facing each other on opposite sides. Yes, yes. That that tends to be the norm here in America. That is that is true. It's kind of interesting. The entire thing about, uh, this is a totally different um, subject, but, you know, monks sitting opposite each other or in a semicircle. South of the Alps, um, you know, monks sat in a semicircle divided by... Uh, by by you know by the abbot's chair uh, because architecturally you had an apse mm-hmm. as opposed to north of the Alps and in northern Europe um, chancels developed so you'd had you have like you know imagine just a big think about Westminster Abbey for example uh, you have a choir area and monks would sit there opposite each other heading towards the altar uh, chancel is a is a sort of northern European um, thing. South of the Alps in Italy, everything was in a semicircle. Kind of interesting, but kind of irrelevant. But monks and nuns, they sit opposite each other and they they sing one half of a psalm verse and then the other side sings back the other one. A friend of mine who, um, uh, who did a bit of a novitiate or part of a novitiate in, the, in a Trappist monastery in the UK said that the ultimate aim of singing the Psalms antiphonally was that you would, you are, what you are doing is you're actually projecting to the other side what you are singing. So you're essentially, you're praying, you're praying what the other side is hearing. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of a transcendent experience. And the only way you can and it's deeply communal. It's not just it's extremely a choir of people singing together. They're they're singing to back and forth to one another. It's extremely it's extremely beautiful. If you truly want to experience this sort of communal thing, and you're in Harvard Square, I would go down to the Cowley Fathers, the Society of Saint John the Evangelist. They are on Mass Ave, and they have evening prayer and morning prayer each day. So if you want to just go in and poke your head round the door and hear that communal psalm singing in person, that is a good starting place to go. 
I'm not sure where the nearest Roman uh, monastery is to where we are. Well, there's people listening from all over, but if you just search for uh, a monastery, most of these lauds and vespers services are open to the public. So yeah. you could just go in the chapel uh, and just prayerfully listen mm-hmm. to the monks or nuns chanting. Yeah. Okay, so someone's listening to this. They're completely bought in. They're inspired. They want to do this on their own, but they're thinking to themselves, what do I do about the music? Where do I learn this music? How do I find any sort of guidance on how to actually sing these melodies? Well, I have the answer for you right here. And (laughs) my guest musician and I are going to demonstrate this for you. So what I thought I would do is give us an example of a popular chant. We talked earlier about the Magnificat, so that's the Latin title for the gospel canticle that is chanted at each Vespers service. It's the Mm -hmm. climax of the service, quoting scripture of of Mary's hymn of praise in front of Elizabeth. So this is done at every Vespers service, so we'll just use this text as our example. And what I thought I'd do is we would demonstrate for you, the listeners, four different ways of setting that text to music. So let's start off with the first one. This would be the original, quote-unquote, or the the traditional Latin Gregorian chant version. This would be the the one that all the other English ones would in some way be inspired by. Mm -hmm. So let's give it a round. So Max and I are going to sing or chant antiphonally just a couple verses of the Magnificat. And unlike Eastern Orthodox clergy, we are not going to sing what tone it's on. All right. Well, <laughs> I'm incapable of that, so. We've got a beard, so. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> All right, here we go. Cue the reverb. So we sound like we're in a nice big monastery here. Hello. Magnificat, anima mea dominum, et exultavit spiritus meus. In Deo salutari meo. Quia respecti tu militatem angile sue. Ece enam exoc beatam medicent omnes generationes. Quia fecit mihi mania qui potens est. Et sanctum nomen eius. So there we go. That's not the whole thing, but that would be tone eight. That's a, that's a technical term in the Gregorian chant modes. Uh, there's many other modes, but that's just a, one beautiful, simple example of a psalm tone. So it's a basic pattern shaped around the accents of the words. And once you get that melody memorized, you don't need to be looking at music. You just follow the text and insert the uh, shape of the melody as you go. So now, here, we're going to do that same text, and also in that same mode, mode 8, to English text. Here we go. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has mercy on those who fear him. 
in every generation. Great. Those would be the traditional Gregorian tones. But in recent years, there's been an explosion of resources out there to help people chant the Liturgy of the Hours in English. And so some modern composers have written new tones that fit perhaps a little more naturally to English, right? Because Gregorian chant was written for Latin, so it fits and sounds most natural with Latin text. English sometimes can be a little tricky because the word accents are a lot different sounding. So here we're going to try an English tone. This is also using mode 8, but it sounds a little different, different melody. And this is very, very simple. And this is something, uh, and if you feel like you're a total beginner musician, have no singing talent, what we're about to do, you can do this. And this was a tone composed by American Benedictine Father Weber. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has mercy on those who fear him in every generation. All right, and finally, that was very simple, as you can hear. If you want something a little bit more complicated, but again, once you get the melody, you don't have to even really think about the music. It, should, it just kind of falls into place. This psalm tone is also mode 8, and this is written by the Arch Abbey of St. Meinrad. This is in Indiana, and they're very well known uh, for promoting English Gregorian chant. So let's give this a try, the Magnificat, again, with Meinrad Tone 8. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. He has mercy on those who fear him in every generation. There we go. Thank you. So that was a, a four-segment melody as opposed to the other ones, which were just two segments going back and forth. All right. And I thought, finally, just to close, we'd give you a little sample of some hymns. So every service of the Liturgy of the Hours begins with a hymn. Now, you can, if you want, open up a hymnal and just choose any appropriate hymn, but what would be more fitting is to choose from the traditional repertoire that go back to the early days of the church, most notably St. Ambrose, who wrote a whole cycle of hymns specifically for the Divine Office or the Liturgy of the Hours. And these hymns are special because there's a theology and spirituality embedded that speak to the particular hour of the day and the season of the year. And also what's notable about these hymns is that most of them follow the same rhythmic pattern. Each stanza contains four lines with eight syllables per line. 
And so what you can do is just learn a few different chant melodies using that rhythm, and then you can use those melodies for any hymn that has that pattern. So why don't we give the audience together a, a sample. This is from Father Weber's collection of English chant hymns from his book, The Hymnal of the Hours. And this is the hymn we're going to do for Sunday lauds. So that's morning prayer on Sunday. Eternal maker of the world, the sovereign lord of night and day, you give the seasons of the year to take time's heaviness away. In deepest night you never sleep, a lamp for travelers on the way, a light divided night from night, the rooster crows announcing day. Great. See, so, I'll give him another one. Here. I just love some so. of these translations. The rooster. Maybe chuckle a bit. Gotta love the rooster at dawn. Announcing yeah. dawn. Yeah, so. yeah, of course. Let's check out the Tuesday Vespers hymn. So this is a different text, but the same rhythmic pattern, uh, but also a different melody. And before we sing, I just want to note that the Vespers hymns during ordinary time follow a pattern of each day speaking about a different day of creation. So as we sing this, see if you can pick up on uh, the day of creation that's being referenced here for Tuesday Vespers. Cue the reverb. Almighty maker of the land, who part the ocean with your hand, and from the floor of swelling sea, the firm and fertile earth set free, who fill the solid ground with seed, of plants to nourish every need and give them buds on tender shoots to bear green herbs and pleasant fruits. There we go. I think that was pretty obvious, speaking about the parting of the oceans and the lands in creation. So I hope that gives a little musical inspiration to our listeners to just say, as I even talked about in my interview last year with James on sacred music, that you too can sing, chant, and sacred music, and you can do it beautifully. You do not need to be a professional musician or musically trained to do this well. And I, and I hope everybody will truly take that to heart, because if we do, that's the only way to really fulfill the church's command of all of us to join in this universal hymn of praise of the Liturgy of the Hours. All right, and uh, aside from Gregorian chant and sacred music, what else do you listen to when you need a break from it all? Keith Jarrett. Nice. You weren't expecting that, were you? No, I was not. And uh, as the boys will probably tell you... I thought your hesitation was revealing that you don't listen to anything else, but that's no, good. So Keith Jarrett and I also listen to hip-hop, mm -hmm. believe it or not. Nice. Anyway, <laughs> any in particular? I like DJ Cool Herc. Uh -huh. Going back to the old, the old standards. Well, you got to go old school. Old school, yeah. I will have to check old that out. Old school with a K, indeed. That's right. <laughs> well, we do have some opportunities for our audience to experience the chanted divine office here at St. Paul's. Uh, Max, you've been instrumental in helping us do 
our Thursday Solemn Vespers service. So that's every Thursday or about eight Thursdays throughout each semester mm -hmm. at 5.30 p.m. in the church. And then also we have a special event coming up through the Harvard Catholic Forum. Yes. Tell us about that. So on the first Sunday of Lent, we will be uh, putting on um, a solemn Vespers. And the idea is, is that it'll be roughly inspired by how Vespers would have been done in the 17th, 16th and 17th centuries um, in, in the Church of San Zeno Maggiore in Verona, which is what allegedly our church here, St. Paul's, is architecturally based on. Uh, I could talk for hours of whether or not this is or not, this is or isn't the case, but let's just say it is. Um, so it'll be, Vespers will be accompanied by cello, violins and a little chamber organ. We'll be singing some Monteverdi. We'll be singing um, some various other music by composers native to Verona, and it'll be quite the uh, it'll be quite the moving spectacle. So do come along to that. That's the first Sunday of Lent at three p.m. It'll be preceded by a lecture given by uh, uh, by James Kennedy, the director of music, and uh, Professor Tom Kelly from Harvard. So do come along to that. Great. So we hope you'll join us for that for solemn vespers on thursdays and but most of all i hope you'll consider taking up uh, praying and chanting the liturgy of the hours on your own and with your friends benedicamus domino deo gracias max attic everybody assistant director of sacred music here at saint paul's parish thanks so much for coming on thank you father Thanks for listening to The Harvard Catholic. Don't forget to follow us or subscribe to stay on top of all the latest episodes. And please consider supporting us by visiting harvardcatholic.org. We hope you'll join us next time as we continue proclaiming the truth and love of Jesus Christ to Harvard and to the world. Amen.